Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to another episode of Meet the Education Researcher. My name is Neil Selwyn. I work in Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these podcasts is simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are up to. Now today we're joined by a very special guest from the UK, Professor Emma Smith. She's the Director of Education uh, Faculty in Warwick University, which you might remember is our sister organisation. Good morning, Emma. Hello. Hi, Neil. Good to see you. You too. So lots to talk about. Firstly, the varied areas that you're researching. Now, you've had a long career career in the areas of social justice and secondary data analysis. I wanted to talk about social justice first. Can you give us a flavour of the research that you've done in this area? Okay, I think I'm naturally nosy, so I have a broad range of interests that reflect my nosiness. My PhD was in Boys Under Achievement, that was in the late 1990s. I was teaching um, in a secondary school at the time and it was very current in the news, lots of um, newspaper articles about crisis in masculinity, failing boys, so my interest is in what what do we mean by underachievement? What is it? Is it the case that boys are underachieving? Or is under, underachievement a kind of much more poorly defined, misunderstood concept? And how does it differ from low achievement? So that's when I really started to get into issues of poverty and inequality as they apply to education and the idea about what can policy do to reduce education inequality. So I mean, lots of people look at achievement. They don't necessarily then look at poverty. So I mean, what took you down the social justice path? Okay, so one of the things that we know, and one of the few things we really do know in education, is that the, um, the key determinant of how well you do in school is family background. And breaking that link between poverty and academic outcomes is one of the huge challenges, I think, that we have as education researchers, and also, of course, as teachers. So that's really why my fundamental issue is in issues of social justice, as they apply to education. And education that is sort of across the life course, I'm interested in compulsory schooling and also in post-compulsory education. So what are the key ideas about social justice that came out of that initial work? Okay, so that work, well, in terms of the underachievement work, one of the things that came out quite clearly was it wasn't just about gender. It wasn't an issue of whether you're a boy, whether you're a girl. The whole idea about what is underachievement, underachievement doesn't really mean anything. Lots of people underachieve for certain times in their life for a whole range of different reasons. And the key issue, of course, is low achievement and why some people, as defined by who they are, where they come from, um, and the link between that family background and those sorts of outcomes in terms of how well they achieve in school, as I said, are very, are very clear. So from that I came up with some, I sort of started to look at research in, t in terms of what do we mean by fairness in education. Right, so that right. idea about social justice, well, what is fair and how can policy makers um, help ensure that the educational experience is a fair one. And that came to some of my more recent work and the, the book that I've just finished, the textbook on key issues in education and social justice, asking those questions about how should we allocate our resources in education. Now, everything you've just said then leads me to think about theory and how you're theorising these things. So concepts like fairness, I mean, are, are you using a particular theoretical lens to kind of use those, those concepts? Okay. Um, Probably theory with a small T, not with a big T. Definitely, always the best. <laughs> so I, um, I suppose 
I'm interested in a lot of the work in political philosophy, people like John Rawls, yeah, yeah. and those different ideas about how we conceive um, fairness in terms of justice as equality, should it be equal treatment, or in terms of need, should we allocate our resources to those who need it the most, um, or should it be simply down to merit. Um, so those kind of three different concepts of social justice and how we allocate our resources, that's what I'm interested in, in how they might apply to different educational scenarios at different times and by different people, because we will all apply those different concepts differently depending on context. So how have things changed? How have research in social justice in the last 20 years since you started working this topic? I mean, you talked before about gender and we now talk about intersectionality. I mean, what are the new things that people are interested in? I think that's a, a big um, issue. When I was started, as I said, looking at gender inequalities, late 90s, early 2000s, it was very much failing boys, gender issues. And I think more recently, and particularly last five, 10 years, the, the education pendulum has swung back, focusing much more on issues of class and poverty, particularly in the UK, that idea about poverty and inequality. I guess it reflects some of the early sociology of education work done in the 1960s. Yeah, I yeah. think that that swung back. And of course, the issues of intersectionality and how the big three race, um, race, poverty and gender interact. It's very interesting. And it, it's also interesting that, I mean, I use a lot of numbers in my research, although I would certainly not describe myself as a statistician. But people who do numeric work in this area have always looked at how issues interact. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that yeah. idea of intersectionality, in a sense, is something that, you know, quant researchers have been doing for, 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 you know, that's what you do. But so it's interesting how it's applied to more small scale research, explaining why these might interact. There is nothing new under interact. the sun. No, it's um, all been done before. Now talking about <laughs> methods, you work a lot with secondary data. Now I know this is a concept that people are often not clear on. So can we, can we start by you giving us a basic definition of secondary okay. data? So secondary data can be numeric or non-numeric. And I would say that secondary data tends to be data that is being collected by somebody else. Sometimes for purposes of research, but most often or not, not for research. So you could think of the national census, you know, that is secondary data and that sort of data is available to social researchers to research using different research questions, different concepts, different theoretical perspectives. In a way, I would describe it as a very democratic way of doing research in that we are fortunate in Western economies that we have access to such fabulous high quality data, often for free, that can enable us to answer some of the key questions that we're interested so in. So how did you come about using secondary data in your own work? I mean, what types of data, what data sets were you working with? Okay, so during my PhD, Boys Under Achievement, I was interested in what are these gaps? Is How long have boys been doing better than girls or girls been doing better than boys in which subjects in schools? So to answer those questions, you need secondary data. So you need the administrative data from exam boards. So I very clearly remember looking at one particular exam board, the Welsh Joint Education Exam Board, um, and thinking, right, where, what data do they have on gender gaps in attainment? Going to their head office, looking in the back of the cupboard in the old envelopes where they had sort of stored decades and decades worth of data. And that's kind of where it started. And since then, I've used data on secondary data that's collected for administrative purposes, on access to higher education, on data from the annual pupil census that we have in England, as well as um, national surveys like the Labour Force Survey, the Annual Population Survey and of course PISA.
Now you alluded to having secondary data in envelopes and on paper back in the 1990s. Obviously digitization is a big thing now and I presume has made secondary data analysis a lot easier. But I'm now thinking how have secondary data methods altered in this age of big data? Is the rise of data science and massive digital data sets a game changer? Okay, so I think big data is quite different to secondary data. So secondary data tends to be collected in a, re a relatively robust framework. Mm. Um, so it's often in, in terms of quite strict sampling strategies, if you're thinking of something like PISA, or it could be population data, if you're thinking of those people who are applying to study at university, it's a sub you know, it is the undergraduate population. So often that data is of the best quality that's available. So often then when people talk about big data, at the moment it tends to be largely data from social media. So I just think that's a different type of secondary data. Yeah, yeah. I think they're complementary. I think maybe there is a sense in which education is lagging behind to some extent in how we use big data more creatively, thinking perhaps about learning analytics, how people, for example, in universities learn. I mean, that's a form of big data. But it's a very different beast. So I mean, is there still a place for the old fashioned, robust secondary data? Of course. We're interested in science. We need good data. And that is the best sort of data that's available. What is worrying is that certainly in the UK, there's been lots of discussion about reducing government funding, especially yeah, yeah, some yeah. of the big studies. And that's a real shame if we do that. So one of the key things for education research is to do is to make a case for secondary data. Yes. Now, that's what you've been doing for the past couple of decades. I'm just wondering what you've been up to at the moment. I mean, what are you currently working on? OK, so we have, again, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm interested, a bit nosy. So I used to be a chemistry teacher. I was interested in why people would study chemistry at university. That kind of got me interested in the whole STEM shortage crisis. So we've been doing a lot of work recently looking at what who goes to university to study science subjects and you can define science as broadly as you want to include psychology, physics, medicine. Um, when they go to, the, to university, what happens to them? We have so much discourse and that discourse has been going on for decades and decades about shortages of highly qualified science graduates. The STEM pipeline. The STEM pipeline. It's the fault of the schools. School science is inadequate and so on. So my interest is, first of all, is this new? And the answer is no. And the extent then, is there really a shortage? And of course, it's really difficult to measure shortages. We, we don't have good data on demand but we do have an awful lot of good data on supply. So we've been looking at the supply through the STEM pipeline in terms of who goes to study it at university, and then when they leave university, what do they do? Do they stay in highly skilled STEM jobs? Do they leave the field? Do they move, do, does a STEM graduate move back into the field, maybe in their 30s and 40s? And how has that profile of the labor market changed over the, the most people's working lives. So we, using our, the cohort data, we can look at what people are up to in their 50s. So that's the sort of work that we've been doing so at the moment. So it's longitudinal, it's longitudinal, It's cross-sectional, yeah, it's yeah. large scale. So to do this piece of research, we've probably used maybe five different data sets, some of which will have gone back and started collecting data in the 1980s. Yeah. So it's a big big lot of data. Absolutely. Now, and that's what you're doing at the moment. I'm also yes. interested in what people have got in the back of their minds. Have you got anything else cooking? I mean, what ideas are you thinking about starting for the future? I'd like to finish this STEM work and to do that we need to go and talk to people. So we need to go and talk to employers, we need to go and talk to students. So that's one area. I'm also interested in education policy 
So in the UK over the last 15, 20 years, there's been, particularly in England, a period of marketization in schooling. Certainly in the last eight years, um, a sense where schools have become much more competitive with each other. And I'm interested in what happens to young people's special education needs in that education marketplace. Are they going to the same sorts of schools that they would have gone to had they been entering the secondary school system 10 years ago, for example? So you're asking big questions about markets and systems and society. I can yeah. see why you would have to need more than just a few interviews with a few yeah. kids. So if I gave you a million dollars, what would be your dream project? A million dollars. No strings attached. No strings attached. I, I suppose because the STEM work that we've done is quite is controversial employers don't like to be told that there isn't a problem and I kind of would feel that we could go as far as we could to answering that question as best we can yeah. put that sort of issue to rest and then perhaps focus in schooling on other ways of teaching science in schooling rather than as an instrumental preparation for the workforce so I'd like to sort of finish that study. Yeah, I've got to be honest with you, I don't think a million dollars is going no, to be enough to do that. No. Now, finally, finally, I was wondering about admin. Now, you've been head of department in a couple of universities. I mean, how on earth do you cope with a role like that and still keep enthusiasm about all your academic work? I mean, are there any upsides to have such a heavy admin role? Um, I guess it goes back to my earlier question about being nosy. And I like working with people. Academics are pretty interesting, mostly. Interesting in scare quotes. <laughs> interesting in scare quotes. And... I don't know, I mean, being head of department, it does give a different sense about how, how we work and the extent to which teaching, research, um, people's kind of career aspirations and so on work alongside each other. And I think it's, it, I mean, in a way, when you do research and you're interested in publishing, it can be a little bit selfish. Your focus is on the next grant or the next output. And I, I don't know, I quite, I quite enjoy that sort of stepping back from that, that kind of broader and also quite creative role, working with people, trying to sort of, <laughs> kind of You've almost convinced recruit. No, I know, not. it can be fun, no, it can be fun. Someone has to do it. <laughs> someone has to do it, Excellent. yes. Thanks ever so much for taking time to talk, Emma. Thank I hope you. we get to see more of you as we uh, develop the Monash Warwick Alliance and see you soon. Great, thanks a lot, Neil. Cheerio.